Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. Country House by Ewan White It was a task that women everywhere, all over the world, do thousands upon thousands of times. Nothing to mark it from those others, except that this was herself, Patricia Eldridge, and she thought, and chided herself for the thinking, I don't really like to go up there alone, but that's silly, isn't it? Someone has to do it, and I'm the only someone. They'd looked so hard for a place in the country, and the house in Belmore had been discovered by one of those accidents when the quest for just such a coincidence fitted in perfectly with its availability. Ray, of course, couldn't get away from the office. Their old car had made the trip to Belmore a week ago for the final decision and the signing of the lease, but had sputtered home in poor shape and was now laid up in the repair shop. Never mind. She could get somebody from the next-door apartment to stay with their three-year-old son, she told her husband. She'd take the train. The house was tucked away on a ridge some miles outside of Belmore Village. It was all weather-beaten shingled with a stone chimney, ivy-covered. For companions, the house had a forest that closed closely around it. The gurgling trace of a brook ran not far away from the backstone terrace. It was, as Ray Eldridge had said, a find— and if the price they'd finally been able to compromise on was a bit above what they'd wanted to pay, the sacrifice would certainly be worthwhile. It was afternoon before Patricia had time to think. The sun had fallen off to the west, but its rays coming through the bare February limbs of the trees that stood near the eave sent lengthening shadows across the barren floors. She'd arrived soon after eleven, taxied out to their house, and my, didn't that have a fine sound, from the Belmore station. The day had been taken up with those innumerable little things, the measuring and sizing up of rooms, where she and Ray would be, and then where they'd put Robbie. She had some curtain samples she'd brought up from the city, and she tried to decide which would look the nicest in the room that would become their parlour. For her, it was happy indecision. She sat for a moment now, perched on a packing-box in one of the upstairs rooms, still in her fur coat, for there was no heat in the house, and for the first time she felt the chilliness. Her ears were ringing, something she'd noticed when she'd been up here with Ray a week ago. It was the silence of the country, an unaccustomed change for a city-dweller, who lives amidst the scenery and sounds of constant activity. A plane flying far above the Belmore Valley filled the winter air with its drone. And then there was a sound from outside. Pat got up. Mrs. Brown, the real estate agent, had said she'd drop out sometime during the day just to see how things were coming along, what with the telephone not connected yet. As Patricia passed the mirror at the head landing, she shook her dark curls and thought that her fur coat looked just a bit shabby for folks who were buying such a scrumptious country house. But then, after all, you have to make certain sacrifices. 
The front door opened. You don't think of locking them in the country. And she took the first step of going down. The stairs crooked away, and she could see nothing but a pattern of yellow light against the turn of the stairwell. Mrs. Brown? she called. Hello, Mrs. Brown? Of course it was Mrs. Brown. Or had the uh, taxi man come early? It was a bit past four. Is that the taxi man? For an answer, the front door, and it was a heavy one, closed with a thud, and that was punctuated by a scuffling sound that faded almost instantly, but inside the house. Patricia Eldridge felt herself tighten. Who is it? Who's down there? Nothing. She stood poised, one foot down on the first step, her hand gripping the banister, and the wind touching the weather vane on the top of the house counted the long seconds off by squeaking the painted metal rooster and swiveling it with an airy, cold breath. Pat very carefully withdrew her descending foot and stood at the top of the landing, afraid now to call out again, afraid to move beyond the sudden and terrible pounding of her heart. The fears of womankind came to her then, the thing she'd chided herself about. Don't be silly, Ray. Nothing ever happens in the country. Darling, it's the only way to get the place fixed up. A train in the distance whistled with faraway detachment. Its remoteness made her think of the city, and of Ray. Oh, Ray, honey, do you know how frightened I am now? Where was Mrs. Brown? She'd called down enough, of that she was certain, with the kind of true intuition that only a woman can have. Whoever it was, whatever it was downstairs, knew of her presence as much as she knew of its. There was a step. In its texture and quality it was heavy, and that put new thunder to her heart. The taxi-man was smallish. Mrs. Brown's steps wouldn't scuff and clump so that the very house shook. Slowly, slowly, Pat inched backward. She chose the West Room because, frighteningly, deepening shadows had claimed everywhere else now, from the pale-setting winter sun. A board under her high heels creaked, and she held her breath. The first step on the stairs was not a surprise. She had expected it, and had been listening for it so hard. Whoever it was was coming up. If she had wanted to call out now, she would not have been able to. Her mouth was dry, and her throat constricted. There was a dressing-room off the west chamber. It connected with the other upstairs bedroom, and that had its own door onto the hall. By the time the steps reached the top of the stairs, she had vacated the room nearest their approach. She still tiptoed, but the time for cat and mouse was nearly over. The steps quickened, echoing hollowly as they crossed the bare wooden floors. Patricia slipped through the dressing-room, through the next room, and out into the hall. The tempo of the steps behind her quickened even more. She gained the hall while— Whatever it was, like in a child's game of hide-and-seek, circled noisily through the rooms she had just left. She ran for the stairs now, all attempts at quiet gone. She ran clattering down like a frightened schoolgirl. 
She made the great front door, pulled it open with desperate hands, and stumbled outside into the sudden gloom of early evening. Her heels turned on the rough stone of the driveway, hurting her ankles cruelly as she ran on. Despite herself and her fear at what she would see, she turned and looked back. But only the top of the house had brightness left upon it. The lower floor was shrouded in shadow. Somebody, or something, came through the door. Of that she was sure, and as she plunged on the road into the forest that lined it, she knew that whoever, whatever it was, was after her. Patricia Eldridge ran as any hunted creature does, without direction, for she did not know the woods or the terrain they covered, but her instinct made her seek the darker places in the already blackening woods, and she ran agilely with all the dexterity of her slim, strong young body, as though she were back thousands of years in time, and in some primitive race of long ago. The terror in her was a thing of civilization, though. The fears that crowded down upon her mind forced her heart rate even more than the strenuous activity of running. Behind, in the darkness, though now she turned not once to look as if afraid of confirming her worst fears, the crashing sounds of her pursuer were unmistakable. An outflung branch caught her across the face, cutting her cheek and her mouth, but she ran on, barely slackening stride, feeling the moistness of blood on her face. Somewhere inside of her was the strong logic that if she could run far enough and fast enough, she would come out of this nightmare, and come to another house, a road with cars, somewhere, anywhere, with people. She fell then, tripped by an unseen root or rock, and sprawled heavily, full length, the wind whooshing out of her. She scrambled to all fours, regained her feet, and went on, but there was faintness in her now, and light-headedness that played tricks with whatever sense of direction she might have had. From the sounds behind, her pursuer was closer. She thought of Ray and three-year-old Robbie, and how much they needed her, and loved her, and of what pathetic uselessness all that was now. She came into a little clearing, and thankfully, oh God, thankfully, there was a rude building of sorts ahead, a shack or cottage. She breathed a prayer, and threw the rest of her strength into a forward lunge, but she had overestimated her failing powers. Again she tripped and fell very heavily. Her chest was crushed. Her breath became fire, put out finally, as the dark ground and the silent black trees came together beneath and over her. When Pat came to, it was to feel with relief a hard wooden floor beneath her, and the man bending over her was—why, he was some sort of policeman, off duty perhaps, but the midnight blue surge of his dress was unmistakable. She struggled to get up, and he helped her, his strong hands gentle despite their size. Profound relief battled with the awful terror and panic she felt so recently. For a while, Pat could say nothing, 
And then, because prosaic things came so much more easily than the myriad questions in her mind, she asked, "'Can I sit on your toolbox here?' He nodded, and she sat there, fighting to regain composure, seeing that her hands were still trembling, and then finding the self-control to say, "'Somebody—something was chasing me out there. I don't know who or what. I guess I fell and fainted.' He nodded. "'You're all right now,' he said. His voice was gruff and large as the man himself, and in the largeness she felt a warm security. Here, but a few moments ago, there had been nothing in her but terror and desperation, as the result of that horror and a terrible cold reconciliation, when there seemed there was no escape. Pat fluttered her hands and tried to stand up. "'Thank you so much. I wonder if you could help me. Show me how to get back to the house. I don't even know what time it is. The taxi-man's coming, and—' She started to rise, and weakness almost took her legs from under her. Patricia sank back on the box. He nodded his head, as though in agreement with her decision. "'You'll feel better after a bit, I dare say.' He turned to something he was brewing on a small stove— and she saw gratefully that a coffee-pot percolated there. After a while, he brought a cup over to her. "'Milk's all I've got,' he said apologetically. He watched her drink the coffee, and she noticed what kind sky-blue eyes he had. She set the cup down, thanked him again. "'You're a policeman. Is this your home, or—' "'Outpost,' he supplied laconically. She wondered if he had a pretty wife and a three-year-old like Robbie. Patricia had enough interest now to look around the cottage. It was filled with man-stuff. There were a couple of animal traps in the corner, tools, a lantern, and on the wall a rifle and a policeman's cartridge belt, with what looked to be a holster. She asked him about the house, her house, theirs, Ray's, and Robbie's. Sure, he knew it. Knew it well. In fact, did you know, he'd lived there once for a short piece himself. He smiled wryly. He'd lost his wife there. She was contrite, even as he answered. There had been a couple of tenants since then. Families? No, no. Two single folks. One, a policeman. What, another policeman? She didn't think of the law as having enough money to own a place like that. Well, you know, in some periods when houses stood untenanted, skip it. And Mrs. Leclerc, an older woman. He became a little more loquacious, always thought it was better to have that place empty. She could understand that, and she dropped the issue, after his wife and all. Poor man, poor lonely man, with those sky-blue eyes that were wide— almost like a child's. Irrelevantly, it made her think of that line from Gilbert and Sullivan. A policeman's lot is not a happy one. Patricia was feeling better. The coffee was strong and good, and its heat had spread strength through her veins and limbs. I think I could try getting back now, she said dutifully. Could you show me? I'd have to, the man replied. 
gracious, it certainly is lonely around here. What do you suppose— The question had been nagging at her. What do you suppose— Who do you suppose it was after me out there? I shouldn't think— She gave a small laugh. That Belmore would have much of a crime problem. Hard to tell, was his only reply. She guessed he knew his job. For all she knew, he'd rooted her pursuer when he'd come upon her outside this cottage. The dial on her wristwatch nagged her. It was getting late. In fact, the taxi man would have come and gone, or come and be waiting at the house. She'd already missed the train she'd planned on taking, and Mrs. Brown might have visited and would be worried that she wasn't there. You can't take somebody like this off his beat, or duty, or whatever they call it in the country, she reasoned, and it was important to her as it would be to Ray to get off on the right foot in this community. Country people aren't the same as their urban cousins. They did things, well, pretty much when they got around to them, foregoing the feverish tempo of the city-dweller. She thought it over carefully, and finally said, almost tentatively, "'If you'd give me a lantern, show me the way, and just start me off, I'm sure I could—' He was silent for a moment, as though he mulled it over, and then he shook his head determinately. "'No,' he said. "'No, that wouldn't do.' She waited, thinking that chivalry was warring with duty in his case. When he said nothing more, after a reasonable length of time, she put in again, "'Really, I do have to start back. How far are we from the house, or a road?' He was tinkering in the corner, and she rose from the toolbox almost impatiently now. He was humming to himself, and it irritated her a bit, even through the gratitude she'd felt for his help earlier. It was as though her time, her appointments and responsibilities were as nothing to him. Oh, these country people! There was, she supposed, nothing to do but to humour them and let them take their own time. Did he think she was ungrateful, or did he, like so many rural characters, resent her because she was from the city? She realised the news gets around in a small place, and that by now everybody in Belmore would know about the Eldridges, city folks who'd bought the empty house in the valley. But still, this was hardly fair. He was, well, quite maddening. Please, she said, with an edge of sharpness in her voice. He left the corner, and whatever small, irrelevant task he'd been doing there. He shrugged his massive shoulders, and said, Well, guess I've got to go to work. So he was going on duty, perhaps, and had wanted to take her at the same time. Despite herself, the toe of her high-heeled shoe tapped impatiently against the oversized toolbox she'd been sitting on. He crossed leisurely to the wall, and took down the cartridge belt, hooked it carefully around his great girth. She saw then that the cartridge loops were empty, and what she'd supposed was a gun holster was, instead, a knife sheath from which protruded the bone handle of a hunting blade. He turned and walked toward her slowly, one hand hooked casually under the belt, 
where the sheath hung. How blue his eyes were, she thought. And then he said almost apologetically before he reached her, You see, ma'am, I'm really not a policeman. And that— He'd reached her side then, and kicked at the large toolbox with his big shoe. That isn't really a toolbox. He grasped her wrist in one huge hand, and raised the lid of the box, even as she murmured almost stupidly, for it seemed so trivial, "'You're not a policeman?' He raised the lid more, and pushed her ever so gently forward to look within the chest. "'He's in there, ma'am, along with Mrs. Leclerc.' He let the cover of the box fall with a thud, and stepped closer to Patricia Eldridge. She didn't even have time to be frightened. Hello, ladies and gents. Ian here. Be sure to pop on over to our YouTube channel or Facebook page for regular updates. If you'd like to support our work, please consider taking a look at our Patreon or Bandcamp pages, or search for us on Audible. You'll find links to everything on our website, horrorbabble.com forward slash links.